Well, good morning. It's a privilege to be here with you all to open up the Word of the Lord together. Uh, we're excited to be in partnership with a like-minded church like you all. It's, it's nice to know that uh, people that, that are praying for us and sending us resonate with the same teaching and philosophy of ministry and views on discipleship and missions, and that encourages my heart. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 13 through 17. And before I begin uh, expounding on that word, I just wanted to um, introduce it, share a little bit about the, the setting, and a little bit about my own personal journey. Um, also bear in mind that this, this passage, we can look at this for ourselves as diagnostic. This passage, we should be able to see it testing us. We should be able to read ourselves into there and say, am I measuring up? Is this talking about me? Where do I stand? Just bear that in mind, and I'll bring that out more as we um, go through it. But before we get into the text, I just want to start with my personal journey. I actually started here in the San Fernando Valley. As I shared in the, uh, the family hour, I, I grew up here. I was born at uh, Kaiser Hospital here in Panorama, nearby lived in Silmar for many years. I lived in Canoga Park for many years. I guess technically Winnetka. Did a little stint in Simi for a bit. Um, but this is where I was born and raised. I met my wife in Silmar um, at her house on her porch. And uh, we were in our 20s, when we, actually 20 when we got married. And early on, by the time, before we were 25, we, had owned, we owned our first place. We both had good jobs. I worked at Hughes Aircraft, uh, had good benefits, um, decent salary. My wife was doing well. We had our home. We were about 25 minutes away from our, our family, our parents, at least her side, and about 45 from my parents. All the guys that I grew up with, my best friends, were all nearby. Uh, we had everything that we thought we wanted. We, and we were working towards and had no intention of going in any other direction in life. We began um, serving at Shepherd's Community Church, uh, which was really nice because uh, it was only 10 minutes from my house. Besides being a great church, I used to go to a church that was like a half an hour away. So we were excited to have a healthy church to serve in that was very close by. Uh, we enjoyed our ministry there. We had no intention of going in any other direction. And certainly the thought of the mission field had never entered my mind in my, say, early 20s. However, something changed. That's the title for this message is Jesus Changes Everything. Now, I use the word in here sometimes should, because granted, if, if you are a follower of Christ, Jesus does change everything. But I put in there should because there are some of us who will kick against the Lord's sanctifying work in our lives and it is a process it takes all of our life but he should be changing us and if you're truly saved he is changing you and if you are moldable and faithful he will change you a lot and you'll become more and more like him until you see him face to face well something caused jess and i to have the desire to leave everything that we had worked for to leave our home our family our church our ministry our good buddies Something caused us to change our direction in life, to change the way we view life, and to change who we fundamentally were inside. Today, we will see from 2 Corinthians 5, 13 through 17, that being a Christian, that is, 
I want to be careful. Being a follower of Jesus Christ should change all of us. It's not some of us. It's Well, some of us get changed a lot and become missionaries and become pastors. Some get changed and actually go to church. No, all of us should be transformed. And let me say this up front so no one is upset. Again, this is diagnostic, and some people that might bug. You know, what do you mean? You know, I've heard a lot of people say, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And that's true. Going to church doesn't save you. But this is diagnostic in the sense that if you do not see a change in your life, if you can't say, well, let me look at myself today. Let me think back a year ago, two years ago, five years ago. I'm exact, the exact same person. I haven't changed. My, I, I speak the same. And my desire for the word is the same. The choices I make, is, it's unchanged, but except for maybe that I... Maybe go to church on Sunday. Uh, I have a shirt, you know, and has a this is not of this world on it. You know, I got a bumper sticker on my car and a backpack. You know, it says you know something about Jesus. But other, but the rest of my life hasn't changed. Then that should worry you. It can worry you, or it can encourage you. If you can say, hopefully, all of us can say, you know what? I can see from now to last year that. I've grown in this area. I've, I've got a lot of room. I've got a lot of areas to work in, but I've grown in this area. And if actually, when if I look back even further, wow, I remember when I was a teenager, living with mom and dad, oh, okay, the way I used to speak or act or think, that should encourage you. But if you see no change, then it could be you're going through the motions. And in which case, I would recommend talk to someone that you know loves the Lord, is skilled in the Word, you know, Pastor Patrick or someone who's discipling you and, and tell that to them. You know, I'm worried. I am the same. I have not changed because being a follower of Jesus Christ changes everything. It should fundamentally transform us. And for me, that change began to accelerate when I just obeyed God in little things. Again, as I was working at Hughes Aircraft, I just felt the conviction. You know, I was raised in the church by my mother in a Christian home. I I believe the truth. Uh, I should read the Bible. So I started bringing my Bible to work. And I started reading it on my breaks for 15 minutes. And at lunchtime, I ended up reading the whole Bible just in my breaks and at work. Something I thought was impossible, this big old... This, have you seen how big the Bible is? How could I read that? I hated reading. But it became a passion. And then I learned that, wow, I can read the whole Bible in just 25, 30 minutes a year. If I just, I mean, excuse me, a day for a year... Only 25 to 30 minutes a day. I can read the whole Bible in a year. I'd, I had no idea. But as I began to take little faithful steps, okay, I'll read the Word. I started doing that regularly, got through the Bible, then the Lord said, okay, here's the next step I want you to take. I want you just to serve in your church. And so I was at this church that needed help with youth ministry and music. So I started helping on the worship team and uh, helped with music. And then the Lord put it in my heart, okay, that's good. I've got another step for you. I want you to get more skilled in the Bible. The Lord put it on my heart to go to the master's college. That was okay for me. It didn't force me out of my comfort zone because, oh, cool, I I can keep my job, my lifestyle, and just go at night and over a couple years, and I did that, and then the Lord just kept incrementally, I I want you to go to seminary. Then at that point, I want you to go to the mission field. By that point, it was easy. The Lord had worked me every time I obeyed in the little things by the time I got to the point where he 
finally you know, pulled away the curtain, and here's what I've got planned for you, I was ready for it. If he would have showed me when I was 20 that he wanted me to go to the mission field and leave everything we worked for, um, I would have done a Jonah and ran the opposite direction. While I was at the Master's College, God did a, a great work. I had a teacher named Mark Tatlock, and he taught a class on missions, and God just really grabbed my heart through that. And then one of my classmates of my cohort was a missionary from the Philippines and just shared all the opportunities out there. And how I remember what Mark was saying, how 90-something, I forget the exact number, it was 90-plus percent of the world's wealth is in this country and only 6% of the world's population. Now, these are 15-year-old facts or so, so I don't know what it is today, but it just shocked me. Wow, we've got most of the wealth and this small drop in the bucket of the world's population living here and all the resources here. It just never was on my radar to stay in ministry in this country as much as I, I love it here. Well, prior to God changing my direction in life and my view of the world and changing my heart, I was a very different person. I'm kind of embarrassed to admit that my dream was to be a rock star. Ever since I was 12 years old, I traded three posters for my first guitar and started taking guitar lessons and then I had a paper route and just every penny I had was buying music equipment and finagling and trading and then I got in different bands and for about five years we played in a lot of the clubs in Hollywood and had some decent gigs and had a lot of fun, but none of that was for God's glory. That was all for me and I was too immature at the time to see that I was pursuing something solely for me. I was focused on my desires, myself, my needs. And God changed me and transformed me and put me on a different path, which I now realize was the path that he had made me for. Now I can look back. It's funny seeing that little things he taught me, like I did a stint doing construction, how that came in handy later on in, in ministry and thinking about building buildings and planting churches, the computer skills that Hughes have been able to use again and again throughout ministry, um, so many little things. All of that was shaping me for God's plan. I just didn't see it at the time. And my circumstances are not unique or different from that of any other believer. Missionaries, it's, it cracks me up how people put missionaries on pedestals. They're just sinners like everyone else who God is prepared to do what we do here somewhere else. That's, that's all missionaries do. They make disciples. They preach the gospel. They plant churches. They teach people the Bible. Scripture is clear that all believers will be changed over the course of their lives. And the life of the Apostle Paul serves as a good example of this. We know him as a faithful man of God who spent his life uh, serving the Lord. We recognize that uh, God used him mightily to spread the gospel throughout Israel and then to the nations. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. It's, it's easy to idolize Paul. He's one of my heroes. If I had to pick who's one of my favorite you know, men in the scriptures, Paul is probably number one on that list of, of humans. However, Paul was a very, very different person before God saved him. He was a man committed to destroying the church. He believed that Jesus was a liar he was a false messiah. He was leading people to blaspheme the God of Israel. And he was committed to hunting them down, arresting them, 
and killing them if possible. Paul's hatred of Jesus and his followers was so intense that he was not content to simply remove them from Jerusalem. He grabbed, or received letters of permission to leave Jerusalem and to go to other cities and grab Christians and arrest them and bring them back for trial. Scripture described him as a persecutor of the innocent in 1 Timothy 12, as well as a violent man and a blasphemer. He admitted in Romans 7, 7 through 8, that he was covetous. He, he shared how the law revealed that to him. He was probably a murderer or at least an accessory to murder. And regarding his relationship to God, it was clear that he was trying to be received and accepted by God to be saved through keeping the law or good works. Listen to Paul's own testimony about himself in Acts chapter 26, verses 9 through 11. He described the old Paul, who he used to be. He said in Acts 26, starting in verse 9, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, at Christians, at followers of Christ, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. This is our Paul, the old Paul. He was determined to destroy Christians. However, he was changed radically after meeting Jesus while on his way to arrest the followers of Christ. And as a result of that meeting, he didn't just ease up or calm down. He didn't go, oops, sorry, Lord, oop, my bad, you know, I'm going to go back to Jerusalem and, you know, oops, no. He went from being one of the church's greatest enemies to one of its greatest soldiers. The God that he had been fighting against and the people that he was trying to destroy became his God and his people. Paul went from being a persecutor of the church to being a prisoner for the church. Scripture revealed that Paul was so changed that immediately after God saved him, he began to preach the gospel. It blows me away every time I read that. He didn't waste any time. As soon as his eyes were open, the scales were lifted, boom, he's in the synagogue preaching the gospel. He also went on to take up collections for some of the poor and needy Christians that he had tried to destroy. The very people he was getting permission to arrest, now he was his fundraiser, a support raiser for them, and their teacher. He continued preaching the gospel in many places, including Jerusalem, the very place that commissioned him and sent him out to arrest Christians. He's back there preaching the message that they were preaching. Paul went beyond Israel and even preached the gospel in Greece, Macedonia, Rome, and various synagogues and home. He's homes. He spent the rest of his life training up leaders, going on mission trips, sharing the gospel, planting churches, and equipping the saints. He even was imprisoned for Christ multiple times, beaten for him, persecuted for him, and was willing to die for him. When some of his friends tearfully pled with him, they tried to prevent him from going to what looked like um, sure imprisonment and maybe even his death. Listen to what Paul told them. They're, I can see them holding on. No, Paul, don't go. 
The Holy Spirit's warning us that you face imprisonment. This might be it for you. Don't go. You heard what happened to some of the other saints. In Acts 21, 13, Paul responded by saying, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. The one he tried to destroy, he saw as a privilege to be bound and to die for. Paul joyfully gave himself for Christ and his church because God had changed him. Don't get comfortable and think, well, yeah, well, that was neat what God did to Paul. He does that to people sometimes. No, he does that to all of us. And the more our hearts are moldable to be like him, the more, I can say it this way, the more we allow or the more we stop getting in the way, the more God will make us like him and radically change us. You see, truly following Jesus changes everything. And today in 2 Corinthians 5, 15 through 17, we'll see three ways that Paul was changed. And we want to look at those. We can ask ourselves, am I changing in these three ways? The answer should be yes. If it's not, then you need to go to the Lord and ask Him to change you. Three ways that all true followers of Jesus Christ will be changed. And these ways were certainly seen in Paul's life here in 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 15. But the first one is followers of Jesus Christ change their reason or we can say our purpose for living. Like I said, I want my purpose was to be a rock star for my own glory. That com- that's completely out the window. I think I have one guitar left. I, I sold most of my stuff. Another change of true followers of Jesus Christ is our worldview will change. The way we view life. And the third change that happened that should happen to true believers is our very nature changes. The person that we are inside fundamentally changes. So let's see how the transforming power of the gospel changed Paul's life. And we can see that these three ways should also be reflected in our own lives. Read with me now or follow along in 2 Corinthians 5. I'm going to start in verse 15. Speaking of Jesus, he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their, on our behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He or she is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. So if you are truly a follower of Jesus Christ, you can expect to see changes in your life. And here in verse 15, we see that one of them is that following Jesus changes our reason for living. Living for him changes how we invest our lives. We can see just how greatly Paul was changed through his conversation with a king named Agrippa and a governor named Festus. The old Paul used to work with the Jewish leadership and Roman government to destroy the followers of Jesus. The new Paul lived for making Christ known even at the risk of his own life. He was on trial at one point in his life for sharing the gospel with the Jews. 
And he went on to share it with Agrippa and Festus in res- and listen to what Festus said in response. He saw Paul's zeal for Jesus Christ. He saw this radically transformed man and he mistaked it in Acts 26, 24. He said, Paul, you're out of your mind. You're crazy. Your great learning is driving you mad. He totally did not get it. Paul was so changed and he he didn't see it for what it truly was. And like Paul, okay, Paul was rising as a, a Pharisee in the ranks. He was a religious leader and teacher. The new Paul didn't just say, okay, well, let me just... I recognize Jesus is the Messiah. My bad, I was wrong. Uh, maybe I'll just go work in a school and teach the scriptures. Let me just calm down and keep... No. The new Paul was radically transformed. We can't go back to the same cubicle. If you came to Christ yesterday and you go to your cubicle today, you're, you gotta, you're a different person. Yesterday your cubicle was the place you went to make money so you could eat. Now your cubicle is the place that God has put you in that you can be his representative, his servant. You've been transformed. Now, granted, I don't hear a lot of people who are evangelists or people who encourage us to share the gospel say this a lot, but I think for pretty much most people, it's scary. It's hard. It's not always easy. Yeah, we we fear rejection. We fear men. We worry about how our family or friends are going to treat us. But that change should be growing each day so that fear of man gets smaller and smaller and that fear of God becomes greater and greater. And we can say like John the Baptist, I must decrease so that he can increase. And I've seen, I have seen in my own life, the more I poured into the word and the more I served, the easier it was to represent God and be the kind of person that he's calling us to be. Well, they thought Paul's, the new Paul was crazy. Well, this, this passage in Acts 24, 26, where um, Agrippa said that, it's not the only passage that reveals people mistaking Paul's passion for the gospel as insanity. It appears that some of those he addressed in Corinth thought that as well. In this chapter that we're looking at today, chapter 5, Paul responded to them in verses 13 and 14, basically saying that they're thinking he's crazy. And he basically responds in, in my paraphrase that, look, the only thing I'm crazy for is my obsession for knowing God and making him known. The gospel compels me. It constrains me. I have to like, you can't stop me. It's like trying to try to shake up a bottle of soda or something and take your hand away. And there's nothing that's going to stop that reaction coming out. And if you fill your life with the gospel, you can't stop it. It's like the people under the bridge that, that we were helping in the Philippines. That wasn't what we were sent there for. But how the gospel in us just constrained us to compel us. We had to do something. We saw the need. There's just nothing that could stop us. We had to share with these people and invest in them. Well, the new way that Paul lived in his time and culture caused people to think that he had lost it. And that people might say that or think that about you. I've got family members that think I'm crazy. I remember when I left my job at Hughes, at Hughes Aircraft, they had one guy um, really gave me a hard time and a guilt trip. He says, you know, how can you do that to your family? You've got a good job. And he was from Vietnam. And he's like, you know, I worked very hard to get here. And I'm, these 
great job and benefits. How can you walk away from that? My dad, who's not a believer, he says, you know, that's fine if you want to do that. For, you know, you want to do your God trip thing, go to, but that's not fair to your kids. You know, people will often think we're crazy for decisions we make when we see that Christ is so worth it, we're willing to leave all for him. I think that's a good thing, actually, when people think we're crazy. What do they call that? A fanatic? A, a zealot? We should be Jesus freaks. We should be so radically committed to him that the gospel consumes us and the knowledge of what he's done for us. And that's exactly what happened with Paul. He was so consumed by what God did and he was consumed with making him known that the world mistook that for insanity. And he tells us in verse 15 what he realized, what caused him to change his direction in life. Verse 15 tells us Jesus died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves. He realized he, he died. He saved me. He paid the penalty of my sin. The wrath that was stored up and waiting for me, Christ took that. I can no longer live for myself knowing he did that for me. It continues in verse 15, but instead of living for ourselves, it's for, for him. We live for him who died and rose again on our behalf. So this verse reveals one of the reasons for Paul's change. His realization that the Father loves us so much that he sacrificed his own son. The Father didn't come and pay the penalty himself. I think it's harder to send your son. I would certainly sacrifice myself before one of my kids. That's even harder. That just shows us there's nothing he would hold back. There's no price that he wouldn't pay to bring himself the glory that he deserves by reconciling us to himself. He explained that Christ died for all. Now, a lot of people get hung up on this little phrase here. Wow, look here, Christ died for all. Does that mean everyone's going to go to heaven then? But we, we see a few other words in here that should clue us in. He died for all, or in other words, we could say it this way, Jesus' life is the one and only sacrifice that God has provided for all, that is, as it says in here, those who live. When, we t- when we're talking about those who live, we're talking about those who have been saved, those who believe. Those are the ones that he died for. His sacrifice is sufficient for all those who live, and his sacrifice is the only means to save mankind and all who believe in him. There is no other sacrifice possible or available that can satisfy God's just wrath against sin. And as a result, Paul wrote in verse 15, those who live, that is, you can say that's synonymous with those who believe, or those who truly love and follow Jesus, not just those who have the bumper sticker, wear the t-shirt and move the marker each day, those who truly follow will be changed over their lives. Paul put it this way, in Galatians 20, 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. When you are truly following Christ, no longer living for yourselves, you're, not, you're no longer 
living your life spent in the sole pursuit of self or focusing on your own advancement or your own success or your own fame and your own interests. You can say like Paul, for me to live is Christ. Or um, I forget the exact translation, but I like the New Living Translation for this particular verse. Basically, living means living for Christ. True joy, true life, um, true satisfaction is found in living for Christ. And instead of living for self, Paul said that those who follow Jesus live for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Believing that Jesus sacrificed himself to save us should motivate us to spend our lives. I like using that word, spend. The way we spend, the way we invest our lives. It's not a one-time shot. It's not a Sunday morning deal. It's not a midweek or something you do in a home Bible study. Yeah, that's, that's my investment. It's spending your whole life serving and enjoying Him wherever you go about in your daily life. Whether in our homes or offices at school or on the run, uh, during the day, our lives, every moment, we can constantly and consciously spend them on serving God. I love this little devotional by John Piper where he talks about um, drinking orange juice to the glory of God. I don't know if you've ever read that. Um, I've got a few of his devotionals, so I forget which one it is. But um, And usually that's the theme that runs through everything he writes is God's glory. But I remember seeing the title, something along the lines of glorifying the God, glorifying God through drinking orange juice, and I'm kind of like, all right, John, you, you've kind of re- you're, you're reading, you know, you find God's glory under every rock, and I think you're reading a little bit too much into it here. Then I started reading it, and just simply, you, we could do this just in the morning, if yourself or your family gathered, Lord, thank you for providing this cup of orange juice, for feeding me. Thank you that I have a roof over my head. I know it's from you. I could be cold, I could be naked, I could be hungry, but because of your loving kindness, you've provided. Thank you. That's glorifying God, even in a cup of orange juice. Paul realized what Christ had done for us, that he died and rose again, and he wanted to have his life be all about glorifying him and true followers of Jesus Christ. We can do that. It doesn't have to be compartmentalized. It should cause us to invest our lives in things that are important to God like his people, like his church, like his kingdom, like our neighbors. It's sad that a lot of people are content to spend their lives amassing goods and wealth for no one other than themselves. Others spend their lives in the pursuit of relationships with people or in the pursuit of sports and hobbies and activities while making little or no effort to live for God. I've had many friends. Um, I've enjoyed fellowship and you know, I have no doubt that they're uh, believers. And then I was just amazed that Oh, I'm not going to be at church for the next several months because it's soccer season or something like that. Uh, at the same time, I've seen other Christians who said, you know what? My kid's incredible player. He's on a traveling team, but we're saying no to this scholarship or this opportunity because that, that's during church time. Who's that famous runner, Light, Lydell, I think it is? What was that movie? Was it Char- Chariots of Fire? Yeah, I mean, an Olympic athlete who says, oh, I, can't, I can't run on, uh, on the Lord's Day. What's even sadder still is there. I've seen many others who spend hours enjoying great Bible teaching. They have great resources. Maybe they can afford all the commentaries and books. And uh, they've got all these great Bible studies to choose from. And they're content not to share it with anyone else. They're content to just go to church on Sunday, buy all these great resources, 
read these great books and maybe at church they share, oh yeah, this is a good one, you should try. And they, maybe they're handing them out to others. But as far as living their life for Christ at work or outside of Sunday or midweek, doesn't happen. Well, before we move on to the next point, let me leave you with one more picture of how radically changed Paul was. He went from persecuting the church to following Christ to the point of even pleading with the lost. We're just looking at 2 Corinthians 5, I think up to verse 17, 15 through 17, but look at verse 20, just a few verses down. As he talks about being compelled by the gospel and compelled by the sacrifice that Christ had made on our behalf and how it had radically changed him. Verse 20 says, Therefore, because of those things, we are ambassadors for Christ. This is the part that gets me. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The Apostle Paul was willing to beg people, please, turn from your sins. Be reconciled to God. And give his life for that. And that's just such a, this verse has been such a strong motivator for me for so many years. Wow. He didn't, it's easy for me in my ministry. I could just sit in a classroom all the time and just teach a bunch of Christians. You should do this. You should do that. Apostle Paul wasn't content doing that. He went out on the streets and he begged people to be reconciled to God. People that he worked with. People that he saw in his day-to-day life. Well, the natural change that we should expect to occur in our lives when we believe in Christ is a desire to live for him no matter where that might take you in life. Whether it's the missions field over the seas or maybe the missions field with your children in your home, so to speak, or your job or your school. However... That's not the only change these verses reveal to us. The changes in our lives don't stop there. Being saved also changes our worldview. I'm really curious to speak to an aunt of my. Oh, actually, she's a cousin-in-law. I see her as an aunt because she's old and she married my cousin. But I remember about 15 years ago, several times we had arguments because she, my. One side of my family that she's from that side professed Christianity. We're very regular in church. And I think I can say this here. Um, But she was very strong about believing that a, a woman has a right to have an abortion. And how dare I tell a woman what to do with her own body? And she would always, you know, well, now, I would never do that myself, she would say. But, you know... Who, how, could any, how dare any man or anybody tell a woman what to do with her own body? I've seen her growing over the years. This is a good 15 years ago, so I really want to ask her. I don't want to start a family fight, but I'm seeing her posting on Facebook about the Lord and stuff. I want to see, has her worldview changed as she's been growing in the Lord? It should, and I hope it has. All of us should be growing. We should have old practices this is another diagnostic. We should ask ourselves, a year ago, do I view the world the same as I did five years ago or ten years ago now? Uh, it's funny. As I, was, I remember uh, um, watching a movie as, when I was a teenager, probably 
you know, young teenager. My parents let me watch whatever I want. And so I watched this movie, and I thought it was the funniest thing. Like, oh, I remember that movie from 20 years ago. I should have watched that with my kids. It was so funny. They'll enjoy it. I started watching it. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that I watched this movie or that I thought it was funny. Some, I remember one that was just outright crude and like, oh, no way. This is, uh, I remember breaking a few DVDs and throwing them out. And then um, I remember another one, um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And uh, I remember, oh, it was such a good movie. It was an action. And then I was watching with my kids, and this guy's all of a sudden got an eyeball that he's eating. I'm like, whoa, turn that off. But I've changed. The things I used to watch and approve, the, the jokes that I might have told before or laughed at, God is changing me. There's, there's still some jokes that I shouldn't be laughing at now, and I wish I didn't understand. But I hope that a few years from now I can say, huh? Someone will tell some crude joke, and I don't get it. We should see changes in the way we view the world and life. When we become followers of Jesus, he transforms the way we evaluate everything. In verse 16, we can see that after becoming a follower of Jesus, Paul's worldview completely changed. He said in verse 16, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. That's the way he used to view the world, according to the flesh. The new Paul viewed everything including people with a transformed mind. Verse 16 teaches us two things about human thinking. First, regarding people with minds that are not transformed, unbelievers, it tells us that they evaluate others according to external human and worldly standards. That describes anyone who's not a believer. That describes all of us believers here before we were believers. We evaluated based on our human reasoning and thinking. Another thing we see from this verse is the thinking and judgments of God's people are changed as they believe and understand the Word of God. At least that's the implication. He changes us, and that comes through understanding the truth. Paul realized that before he was saved, he was totally wrong in his thinking about who Jesus was. As I said earlier, he saw Jesus as a blasphemer, as a false messiah, as a liar, and he believed he's some dead guy. And these people are trying to follow this dead guy and stir things up. That's how he used to see things. Well, he wrote that even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, I used to view Christ with my human reasoning before. I saw him wrongly, yet now we know him in this way no longer. I love this passage in Acts where Paul is on his way to arrest Christians it's such a great example of God's sovereignty and salvation for my Armenian friends who uh, would minimize the sovereignty of God so that they could elevate our free will. You know, God doesn't, we are the ones that choose to be saved. It's not God, they would say. I love Paul and I, as an example. I said, hey, that's interesting. How did that work out for Paul? He's walking down the road to destroy Jesus and his followers and God basically strikes him and blinds says, Hey, Paul, guess what? You work for me now. You're a Christian now. You can change the tag. I'm going to send you to kings and governors. You're going to speak and represent me. Instant Christian. That is a beautiful picture of God's sovereignty and salvation. That's what happens to all of us. God wakes up dead men and women, does spiritual CPR, gives us faith so that was before we evaluated the word of God in life through the flesh, now we can see it for the truth that it is as, and as we obey and follow we can grow and understand more and more. And 
our whole worldview can change and be conformed to his. Like Paul, many people had wrong understanding of who Jesus is and what he did. Paul says that this is the result of viewing Jesus according to the flesh, according to worldly standards and human reasoning. It's an attempt to evaluate truth with fallen, sin-cursed minds. People forget, some people believe that mankind were basically good and that we can choose God. People forget, at the fall, our minds became cursed. We became sin, sinners, slaves to sin, unable to save ourselves. We need God to reach down and do the miracle of saving us. We can see an example of this when the scribes refused to believe that Jesus was the Savior. In Mark chapter 3.22, After he did miracles, in front of their own eyes, their response was, well, uh, rather than going, wow, praise God, the Messiah is here, and get down and worship, they said, "Uh, he's he's possessed by Beelzebub, and he cast out demons by the ruler of demons. They can't deny the miracle, so they just say, well, it's the devil made him do it. As we saw earlier, the old Paul saw Jesus as a false Messiah, a liar, and a blasphemer, the Pharisees didn't see Jesus correctly. They even explained away the miracles. And that's how we were before Christ opened our eyes as well. The new transformed, Paul said, yet now we know him in this way no longer. The new Paul's worldview changed and caused him to see Jesus correctly. And like Paul, all people who are truly saved, who are truly followers of Jesus Christ, are being transformed. However, this last verse, we see that Paul taught that our transformation goes beyond just our our purpose for living and our worldview. It also includes renovating the very core of our beings. You see, being saved, according to verse 17, we see that it changes our nature. Our feelings, our inner desires is changed and transformed. Paul said it this way, Therefore, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away, and behold, new things have come. Everyone who is in union with Christ, or said this way, everyone who has been accepted by God, everyone who has been granted eternal life and an inheritance in heaven, who have the privilege of knowing God's heart, they have been and are being transformed. We are made New creatures, it says in this verse, that can also be translated new creations of God. Our very desires, the desires of our heart are changed and oriented to God's way. Like I said, for me it was a slow process from, you know, just reading my Bible, just something simple as that, to becoming a missionary. God slowly shaped and conformed me as his new creation. The old things passed away, our old value systems, priorities, beliefs, loves, and plans are gone or should be fading and new ones replacing them. Evil and sin still may be present in our life, but we see them in a new perspective and they no longer control us. Before our minds were in bondage or slavery to sin, we were unable to please God. We were unable to have victory over sin, not ultimately. We often enjoyed and approved of sinful behavior. I can remember many instances in my life of hanging out with friends, doing sinful things, and approving of theirs, and them approving, approving of my sinful, sinful behavior. 
We enjoyed friendships with people who practiced sinful lifestyles. We were justly found guilty and we were condemned for our sins. Well, those things have passed away. Now, for those who are in Christ, new things have permanently come. Now the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sins. We didn't have that conviction before. Not like we do now. We have godly sorrow over sins that lead us to repentance. Before, God would prick our conscience and we would either respond to it um, by recognizing it's wrong and repenting and going towards Him or we would reject it and our hearts would become harder and harder as it says in Romans 1.18 and we would get on that slippery slope and we would worship the creation rather than the Creator. But the new creations in Christ have a growing hunger for God's Word, a desire to worship and glorify Him, a desire to serve God and, a, and now we are declared righteous and forgiven for all of our sins. Again, if you don't see any of those things in your life, there's no desire for God's Word, no desire to worship, no desire to be with other believers, then why would you call yourself a Christian? It's not a club. I've got, I've got Jewish friends. I've got Christian friends. I've got Catholic friends. They're all those religions by association only. Funny is my brother-in-law told me well, we were having Thanksgiving years ago and he was eating ham and I go, dude, what are you doing eating ham? I thought you're supposed to be Jewish. He goes, oh, I'm only Jewish by circumcision. There's a lot of people that are only Christian by baptism or by attendance. If that's you, if you don't have a hunger for the Word, if you don't have a hunger to glorify Him, you know, the church you're going out evangelizing. Even if you're afraid to do that, there should still at least be an infant form. I'm afraid to do it, but I'd like to. There should at least be that. And then God will work with that. And maybe he'll do with you like he did with me slowly over years, preparing me to leave it all. But no matter what your past is, God forgives us and makes us new. He continues to change us to his image. God is in the business of changing Paul's, changing me's, and changing you's to be his new creation. And through Paul's life, we have seen that everyone who has been saved changes. We change our reason for living. We change our worldview. And we change our natures, or at least those are in process of changing. And following Jesus should change everything. It should pack, impact the choices you make on a daily basis, the classes you take, the jobs you might take, the friends you make, the church you go to, how you serve, how you don't serve, your future plans, all of that. And let me just leave you with this. Just a question that you can ask yourself. I've asked it a few times already, but ask yourself, do I see a difference today from how I was a year ago and a few years ago? Pray about that this week. If the answer is yes, then be encouraged and set goals to be even more like Christ. If the answer is no, then get on your knees and ask the Lord to change and truly transform your heart and you can ask the leadership and, and Pastor, Pastor Patrick about that. Let them know, you know, I, I don't see that change. Because if you are truly a follower, again, your reason for living, your worldview, and your nature is changing and will continue to change till you see Jesus face to face. And Lord, I pray that every one of us will be encouraged by seeing that change in our lives. It'll be clear that as we look back that you are transforming us and making us more like you, that we have new desires, 
that we have convictions that we didn't have before. That we have desire for your word that's growing. A desire to know you more, to serve you, and to make you known. I pray that we would learn from Paul's example that we would be radically changed to serve you and glorify you. And that would be our greatest treasure and greatest privilege. In Jesus' name, amen.